Okay, I want to talk to you, first of all, about uh, GPS. Great global positioning system, okay? And this has transformed the lives of many. Even Dale could get from Jersey Village to here without getting lost due to GPS. Now, maybe, uh, maybe some of you here think, wouldn't it be great to have a Bible GPS? You know, something that will enable us to find our way around the Bible so we don't get stuck and waylaid in Leviticus. Um, but also to enable us to actually understand what the passage meant to God's people back then so we can understand its significance for us today. In other words, so we can walk in the ways of the Lord. And no doubt, that's one of the reasons why you're here at the biblical literacy class, so that you can uh, read the Bible in a literate way, which is not the same as reading it literally. So a literate reading means that you will take into account the type of literature you're looking at, You'll also think about the literary conventions of the time, the use of exaggeration, hyperbole, the use of symbolic numbers, especially in the book of Revelation, how the passage would have been understood in the past so we may understand it right in the present. Now, someone has said the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Now, with that approach in mind uh, this morning, I want us to leap forward to the end of John's Gospel to what is referred to as the epilogue in chapter 21, in order to discover some of the hidden gems which are meant to strengthen our confidence in the inspiration and reliability of Scripture, as well as to encourage us in our mission to the world. Now, very early on in the life of the Christian movement, it was bedeviled by heretical sects. And one group was known as the Gnostics. And that comes from a Greek word, gnosis, meaning knowledge, because these guys thought they had inside knowledge of God's mind. And not surprisingly, they developed esoteric, strange ways of reading the Bible, some of which involved special codes to discern the deeper, hidden meaning of Scripture. And they also concocted their own Scriptures, such as the so-called Gospel of Philip, And, of course, in recent years, uh, Dan Brown has made a mint uh, with his Da Vinci Code. However, just because there were crackpot ideas of reading the Bible involving codes and symbols doesn't mean there were not widely recognized legitimate ways of writing which involved numbers and symbols. And they're designed to convey the truths of God, which you can find elsewhere in the biblical text. And one such device was common among the Jews and later Christians was that of gematria. So let me explain. Uh, When I was a young boy, uh, I was greatly influenced by the man from Uncle Cho on TV. And uh, as aspiring Napoleon solos, my friends and I used to make codes and send them to each other in class. Now, they were fairly simple Uh, A, 1, B, 2, not exactly Enigma, but that was all we could manage. Now, the Jews did something similar. Uh, Hebrew letters were also numbers. The first nine letters being 1 to 9, the next nine being 10 to 90, and then the last five being 100 to 400. So coding with words with numbers is called gematria. 
Now, one of the most well-known examples of this is found right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in his genealogy. Now, it's generally recognized this is a a sort of artificial construction of the uh, division of the three generations into 14. And uh, so that is to make a very important point, which is underscored right in verse 17 at the end of chapter 1. We were told that there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So what's special about the number 14? Well, the name David in Hebrew is made up of three Hebrew radicals, Dalet Vav Dalet. Dalet was given the numerical value 4, uh, Vav, 6. Add them together, 4 plus 6 plus 4, you come to the grand total of 14. So by arranging Jesus' family tree in three blocks of 14, the very pattern declares that Jesus is David's greater son, the Messiah. Do you see? Now we find the same kind of thing operating at the end of John's Gospel, in John's Gospel. So let's take the beginning and the end, the prologue, the epilogue. Now, people have disputed as to whether the epilogue was original to John's Gospel. You can understand why. You, you may think a more natural and obvious ending would have been chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. Now that is great. That is a punchy evangelistic ending to a great evangelistic gospel. That would have made Billy Graham proud. And what is more, we may think that a gospel which begins with the portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ in such lofty terms, the Logos, the one who was with God, the one who was God, the one who has enjoyed this intimate relationship with the Father, the one and only, to then wind up with this account of a fishing trip and the rehabilitation of Peter. That seems an anticlimax, doesn't it? And furthermore, to end with the reflection that there would be needed more libraries in the world to accommodate all the books that could be written about Jesus uh, would be, uh, again, seem a bit of an anticlimax. But what if John was doing at the end of his gospel what Matthew was doing at the beginning of his, highlighting the identity and significance of Jesus, but in a subtle way? That's a game changer. And this is where gematria comes in. The prologue contains 496 syllables. The epilogue contains 496 words in the Greek. And this has led Professor Richard Borkham to conclude that this is more than a coincidence. Only too true. Because 496 is the numerical value for only begotten, monogenes which formed the climax of the prologue in verse 18. No one has seen the Father, but the 
only begotten, monogenes, being in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. So this is equivalent to Matthew's genealogy and the number 14, which presents in code form, gematria, that Jesus is the Christ. So by the same means, John underscores the uniqueness and supremacy of the Son as a monogenius. And of course, that increases the likelihood that the person who wrote the end of the gospel also wrote the beginning, and vice versa. Now, for centuries, scholars and theologians have pondered the significance of the large number of fish caught, and more to the point, the precise number specified. Chapter 21, verse 11. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Why not just say, we caught a lot of fish that day? Now, some argue this may be no more than John wanting to substantiate his credentials as an eyewitness, very much in line with what he says in John 19. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. After all, someone had to count the fish. They weren't weighed as we may do today. And perhaps John drew the short straw, and uh, he's the one who had to do this smelly task. Is that it? I was there. I know it happened. Well, in part. Now, you'll not be surprised to hear that down the centuries, there have been some very interesting interpretations of the meaning of the number of the great fish. Mention four. First, the catch of fish tells us of the salvation of humanity. According to this view, humanity cannot be saved without keeping the Ten Commandments. But in account of the fall, we can't even keep the commandments without the help of grace and the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And more to the point, number seven signifies holiness because God blessed the seventh day, made it holy. Ten plus seven equals 17. And if all the numbers from one to 17 were added together which uh, they equal 153, the 17th triangular number. Hence, the 153 fish signify that all the elect are to be saved by God's gift of grace and by following the Ten Commandments. Now, that was put forward by St. Augustine in the 5th century. We then move on to St. Cyril, who was born in Thessalonica in the 9th century. Now, he pointed out that 153 consists of 100, the great number of Gentiles to be saved, plus 50, the smaller number of Jews, plus 3, the Trinity who saved them all. And others have followed Cyril in this way and suggested things like 100 are the married lay faithful, 50, the many faithful who commit themselves later to continence in life, either as living as widows or living with a spouse in a brother-sister relationship. And then the three, the precious few, 
who live lives to celibacy as virgins, equals, again, 153. So that's talking about the whole church. Now, I want to say, if you believe that, you believe anything. All right? But it was taken seriously. Now, St. Jerome, in the 4th century, took hold of the common belief of the time that there were 153 species of fish in the whole world. Hence, the disciples caught 153 fish, signifying that people of every class and any time would be saved as the gospel is proclaimed. People were, uh, were fished. There was a fishing for men. But perhaps the most amusing is this one, the explanation that fishermen tend to exaggerate, okay? Uh, you know, it was that big, but it got away, Okay? And, but this view says, well, look, John wants us to know that this was no exaggeration. And he understood the more he could provide, the more details, the more he would be believed. I could give you lots of other examples uh, which are very creative, or to, which is a very English way of understating it, saying they're off the wall. Now, this has led some, like Professor Raymond Brown in his commentary on John, simply to raise the flag in surrender. He says, one cannot deny that some of these interpretations, they're not mutually exclusive, are possible. But they all encounter the same objection. We have no evidence that any such complicated understanding of 153 would have been intelligible to John's readers. Well, I don't think we need to throw up our hands in surrender just yet. The question is, how do we sift through the uh, various competing interpretations in order to engage in a literate reading of the passage? One which is true to the original intentions of both the divine and the human author and would make sense to John's readers. Let me give you three principles to avoid crazy readings. First, the claim must fit the data of the text. That might sound like stating the blindingly obvious, but it is not so obvious because people have come out with all sorts of weird uh, interpretations of the Bible. The Trinity and the virgins are not there in John 21, Okay. Our task is to get the meaning from the text. Secondly, the meaning must have been possible for the author and the readers. And this is what Raymond Brown was was really getting at. We believe that Scripture is God-breathed. We also believe it's a product of human authorship. The Bible is human, though infallible, and divine, which is why it's infallible. But we've got to go with the way the original writers and readers would have understood it. Look at the literary conventions of the day, even though they may seem strange to us. The third principle is this. Any so-called deep meaning of Scripture must cohere, be in line, with the surface meaning of the Bible. Now, this is the principle which is linked to the uh, belief that God has chosen to communicate to us. Calvin uses a lovely illustration. He, he talks of God 
lisping to us, like we would talk to a little toddler or, or, or a child. We use their kind of language to communicate. Well, God does the same with us. He uses the conventionally accepted means of writing of the time to connect with us. So God wants to communicate. He does so clearly. He doesn't play tricks on us and tease us with these esoteric codes and hidden meanings. Okay, with those three principles in mind, what are we to make of the 153 fish? Well, thinking of the suggestions of Augustine, Cyril, and Jerome, we have to ask, is there any evidence that for John and his readers, 153 was a symbolic number? That it did, rep- it did represent all the people in the world? It seems there is. Someone said, here we're sharply reminded that while Scripture is close to us, in that we hear God speaking to us through it, by his Spirit, giving testimony to his Son, at another level, the Bible is to, you've got to read the Bible by going on a cross-cultural journey. Since we think of numbers in quite a different way from that of the first century people. Now, we've already seen that the numbers were significant when it comes to gematria. Now, here's the thing. 153 is the numerical value of the Hebrew for sons of God. Now, that should ring bells with us. And our minds should go back to the beginning of John's gospel and God's great purpose for sending his son into the world. Chapter 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Caiaphas says pretty much the same thing in chapter 11. Now that means that what we have here in this miraculous catch is not only the miracle that it is a big number, but that it is this number. In other words, the evangelistic intention of God set out in the prologue is reinforced in the epilogue by way of gematria. So as the gospel is proclaimed, God will bring in all his children into his kingdom, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the significance that this is a large number shouldn't be overlooked either. Now, there are not many large numbers in the mentioned in the New Testament. This is one of them. Acts 27, 37 is another, where Luke mentions that 276 people were saved from the shipwreck. And the other, of course, which intrigues you all, is 666 and the number of the beast in Revelation 13. Thing is, they're all tri- triangular numbers. So let me say a little bit more about triangular numbers. Now, we're familiar with square numbers. 4 times 4, 16. We recognize a square number. The ancient world had another sophisticated method of counting triangular numbers. The sum of successive integers. Triangular numbers were more important in a world where you, where you primarily count using physical objects. 
rather than our world, where numbers are more abstract. In fact, the word in the New Testament for to calculate, sephizo, derives from the word for pebble, sephos. Why? Well, you would have used pebbles to count. So as Augustine rightly noted, 153 is the triangle of 17. So then you ask, what is the significance of 17? And this is where we turn to another passage in the Bible which helps us to understand. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 9, Luke provides a list of the regions where residents were in Jerusalem at Pentecost, you know? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and so on. And we're told that they heard the disciples declaring the wonders of God in their own language. Now, taking the Jews and proselytes, the, those who got converted to Judaism, as two groups, Ben Witherington points out that we come to the number 17. And given that in Jewish thought, 10 is the number of perfect order, 7 is the number of perfection, maybe Luke is making the claim that the gospel message at the very beginning went out to people from all over the known world. Now Luke is certainly interested in numbers. Martin Menken has shown that in Peter's Pentecost sermon, it is divided into two halves of 444 syllables each. The total, 888. And that is the geometria value of Jesus' name in the Greek. So maybe the all the nations connection is also here in John chapter 21 and the great catch of fish. The ten, seven, forming the triangle number of 17, which makes 153. The complete and perfect number of those to be saved, those to be caught by the gospel. Did you see? So Augustine's conclusion may have been right, but for all the wrong reasons. The gospel is to go out to all the nations. Jesus said earlier on in John chapter 10 that he came to lay down his life for his sheep, some of which were not of the Jewish fold. They will hear his voice, and they will be brought to him under one flock, under one shepherd. So there's the universality of the gospel is to go out to all people, and a particularity too, it is for his sheep. They're the ones who are going to be drawn in. But being biblically literate also means reading a passage not only in terms of its immediate setting, but also in the wider context of the entire Bible, what's called the canonical context. So let's ask, is there any other part of the Bible which might lie behind John's account, which backs up this interpretation, that this is a symbol of reaching out to the nations of the world? There's at least one, Ezekiel chapter 47, 1 to 12. The man 
brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. And then when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, the water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it enters into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the water flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the water flows, everything will live. Now this links in with Jerome's thought that the gospel is for all sorts of people, all types who will be saved. Again, giving us a good example of someone who is right in understanding the passage, even if he got the reasons wrong. So in Ezekiel 47, we see the baptismal waters flowing from the overturned bronze sea of the temple. And they flow out to the boundaries of the land. Remember how Jesus claimed to be the source of such living water, flowing water, back in John chapter 7. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, flowing water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. Now in Ezekiel 47 verse 9, we're told that very many fish will live in the formerly dead sea as a result of these living waters. In verse 10 we read, And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En-Gedi to En-Eglem. There will be a place for spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great Mediterranean Sea, very many. Now, the Dead Sea is the boundary of the new land after the Jews came back from exile. And therefore, it was the place of contact with the Gentiles. And this means that the fishes are the Gentile nations. The fact that the sea is formerly dead and is now brought to life, may indicate the hopeful influence of restored Israel over the nations before Christ comes, and pointing to the greater influence of the kingdom after Pentecost. Now here's the interesting thing. We've got another example of Gematria. You see, if we subtract N from Engedi and N Eglem, then, because N simply means spring, then the following emerges. Gedai equals 17. Eglem equals 153. And again, this is too close to be a coincidence. And once again, we have, as you see, the number 17, Gedai is mentioned first, it's relative 153 connecting to the evangelization of the Gentiles, symbolized by fishing. 
Now, of course, uh, the story of the fishing expedition in John should trigger in our minds another time involving Peter and the disciples who were fishing and had a similar result. Luke chapter 5. You remember the story. After a disastrous night of failing to catch anything, Jesus told them to cast their nets. And what happened? They got a bumper harvest of fish. And Jesus then said, from now on you will be fishers of men. Now Jesus, I don't think, simply said that because they were fishermen, that's part of it. But also because behind that statement is Ezekiel 47. God is the great fishers, fisher of men, even back then. Now, I'm sure the uh, early disciples would have um, made that connection as well. So let me bring it together and just mention three things. Now, these passages, while on the one hand are familiar, on the other hand are less familiar, they're strange. We're not used to reading literature which uses devices like gematria. But once we recognize how early authors and readers would have operated, it helps us to appreciate the meaning of the text more fully. So keep on coming to the biblical literacy class, okay? And Mark hasn't paid me to say that. Secondly, there's a very good case to be made that the number 153 is both real and symbolic. I do believe that under the amazing sovereignty of God, 153 precisely fish were caught that day and counted. God in his omnipotence orchestrated it to be like that, to convey the truth made elsewhere in Scripture, Matthew 28, symbolically Ezekiel 47, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the whole world. Isn't that amazing? And similarly, the number 17, which is connected to Pentecost and the event linked to Luke 5. Not only is the commission to make disciples of all nations, that's what we've got to do. It also strengthens our confidence that the exact number of God's people will be drawn in. Not one will be missing, as Jesus said. Now, it was this doctrine, what's called the doctrine of election, which enabled the Apostle Paul to persevere in Corinth, Acts 18. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? I am with you because I have many people in this city. What did he do? He kept on fishing. Fishing for Christ. So points for home. Just let me mention a few. This episode of the catch of 153 fish is of a piece with one of the main themes of John's gospel. Captured in the words of Jesus in John 12, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All kinds of people. Willed mission is part of the heartbeat of God. So perhaps this week you want to commit yourself afresh to the Great Commission. 
by resolving to pray and support some overseas missionary endeavor. And if you're looking for someone to support, I don't mind saying this because he's my boy, my son Philip and his little family, two little girls, are due to go to Vietnam for life to fish for Jesus. Now, they're going to need an awful lot of support, I can tell you. So if you're interested, I have these little cards, and on the back it tells you how you can support them. So do come and see me afterwards. The disciples, they're fishing in home waters, Sea of Galilee. Jesus said that the gospel begins in Jerusalem and then to the rest of the world. Here's a question. Who can you pray for and witness to this week near a home? Cast the net wide. And then thirdly, we've seen the value of a literate reading of the Scriptures. So commit yourself this week to going deeper into God's Word with the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to mine all the treasures it contains. And I think I've managed to do it within time. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, again, we we are in awe at the glory of your word and your sheer power and wisdom. That's something that was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Christ in Ezekiel could be enacted there in the Sea of Galilee with those 153 fish. But this is not just to amaze us, but Lord, to stir us and to move us to worship of you, but also to reach out to other people with the gospel of Christ. And we pray, dear Lord, that it will please you that you would use us, you would use others, that many, 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 many more from different backgrounds, different cultures, different nationalities will be caught for Jesus and that it will be exalted. And as he is exalted, he will draw all men to himself. For your name's sake, amen.